0: Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes, Family History Radio, 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of women getting the vote in the United States. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to Gina Philibert Ortega about the 19th Amendment bringing women the vote and how you might be able to find records of your female ancestors voting. Plus, we'll have a lengthy visit with Dr. Henry Louis Gates from the PBS iconic series, Finding Your Roots. He's got a new season going on right now, and you'll want to hear all about it. That's this week on Extreme Genes, Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover. Gather. Connect, a presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree... And watch the nuts fall out. It is so nice to have you along, genies. It is our first show of the new year, of the new decade. So much to talk about. And what a great first show of the decade we've got, actually. We're going to be talking to Gina Philibert Ortega coming up here in uh, just a little bit. You know, it's 100 years since the first election that women voted in, the 1920 election. And uh, she's going to talk about how you can actually find some records of your female ancestors voting, some that actually predate 1920. And she'll talk about some of the things that finally led up to the 19th Amendment that brought women to voting. And uh, it's going to be a fascinating conversation in about 10 minutes or so. And then later in the show dr henry lewis gates because it's a brand new season on pbs for finding your roots and dr gates is going to talk about all the guests coming on this year he's going to give us a little preview of some of the things that uh, they discovered in the process of uh, working with some of these celebrities so this is going to be a great first show of the new year and i'm very excited about it right now let's head out to boston and talk to david allen lambert he is the chief genealogist of the new england historic genealogical society and americanancestors.org happy new year david great to have you back. Happy
1: New Year to you now that we're in a new decade, or yes. are we? <laughs> or, or are we? What do you mean? <laughs> oh, come on now. All the banter on the internet about people saying that the new decade doesn't start to 2021. I'm in the camp that I don't care. It's still the 20s to me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, i tell you, that's an interesting argument when we got to the year 2000, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember that because the fact that the first year isn't zero, the first year is one. And it goes one through zero, right? One, two, three, mm-hmm. four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And right. that's, that's fine. The end of the decade would be that. But you can't say that 2020 is in the teens. You can't say that uh, 2010 is in the O's. You can't say 2030 is in the 20s. So I just completely reject the idea. This is the beginning of the 20s, but the century didn't begin until 2001.
1: Remember, kids, you heard it here first. That's it. That's it. You heard it from <laughs> me.
0: I'm saying so, that's the way it is. Well, will it be the roaring 20s? You know,
1: obviously we had big things like the 19th Amendment and woman's right to vote, as Gina will be talking about with you later. And we have, of course, prohibition, which, well, my grandfather was highly connected with that.
0: Yes, that's right. He was a bootlegger, wasn't he? He was,
1: in fact, a bootlegger, (laughs) and perhaps even for the Kennedy family, as rumor has it. Oh, wow.
0: No documents to prove this. (laughs) Right. Well, the good news is, too, with the beginning of the new year, we have all the stuff from 1920. 24 kicked into public domain so we're talking about all the creative works this means uh, audio published music books and photographs and if you're writing family histories for instance and you're looking for public domain photographs to illustrate the era you can now go up as recently as 1924 without worrying about copyright issues Well, you know, I'll
1: tell you, it gets confusing with genealogy when you have part of the siblings are born in the 19th century, some in the 20th century. How about twins that are born in different decades? Yes. (laughs) This was in Indiana. I love it. Yeah, little Jocelyn came in at 11.37 p.m. on December 31st, making her the last baby born in the hospital in that decade that her brother Jackson was born about 12.07 a.m.,
0: Yeah, on January 1st, 2020. So they're born in different months, different Mm -hmm. years, and different decades, but 30 minutes apart.
1: Well, congratulations to two little babies who will have something to talk about for the rest of their lives. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, give you a heads up on a story that's been kind of going around with genealogists, this is a headless body that was found in a cave of a suspected axe murderer. This is a bootlegger out in Idaho, and they found his torso, and they've now, through DNA, been able to discover who this gent
0: is. Yeah, this is a guy who was actually found in 1979 and was so well-preserved, it was thought he'd probably been killed within the previous five years. And now, because of the DNA Doe Project, we have a different result. 1916? Yeah, that's what they figured out through DNA. And, in fact, we're going to talk to one of the guys involved in the project, the DNA Doe Project, one of the team leaders about this whole situation, how they figured it out. So we're going to get that full story next week on Extreme Gene. so stay tuned well, for they- that.
1: Well, they've been piecing this story together for a while because they found part of him in 1979. It's an 11-year-old girl in 1991 found his mummified hand. Oh. Uh, so, yeah, hopefully he's all accounted for now. No, nope, they're still missing the head. You know, people that were enslaved obviously got the worst treatment in American history, in my estimation, that Native Americans. In Tallahassee, Florida, they've discovered that under a country club is a cemetery of enslaved individuals.
0: Yeah, we're talking about under the seventh hole of a golf course of a country Mm -hmm. club.
1: Yeah, they estimate about 40 graves have been found at this Capital City Country Club in Tallahassee. In this case, these are probably graves that never had markers to begin with, or at least anything of any consequence. But it's a terrible shame, but at least now maybe the right will be done, and maybe the remains will be disinterred and buried someplace properly.
0: Well, they're actually talking about maybe shutting down that hole, rearranging the golf course, because you just you can't have people teeing off over bodies no. of anybody. Yet alone no, driving folks golf this, carts
1: over them. Yeah. I mean,
0: yeah, especially in this situation.
1: Well, that's all I have this week from any HGS. But if you want to become a member in the new year, go to AmericanAncestors.org, and you can use the coupon code EXTREME to save yourself $20. All
0: right, David, thank you so much. And uh, you're going to come back a little later on. We're going to do Ask Us Anything at the back end of the show, of course. I shall do that. And it's my very first guest of the brand new year in the decade. It's Gina Philibert Ortega. And I'm just thrilled to have you back on, Gina. It's been a long time. How are you?
2: I'm good, Fisher. It's great to be here and to be the first guest of 2020 is very cool.
0: And the decade. Yes. And and happy new year to you. You know, you uh, and I were talking a while back and, and kicking around the idea that in 2020, this is the anniversary, the 100th anniversary, the centennial of women getting the vote. And you've done so much great work on uh, women ancestors and helping people find stories about their female ancestors. It seemed like a natural way to start out the new year. And I guess we ought to start with just talking about the 19th Amendment and how that came about, because there were so many of our female ancestors who at this time, this election in 1920, 100 years ago, where they voted for the very first time.
2: Yes, yes. And, you know, there's a lot of things leading up to this, and there's a lot of things to keep in mind. So really, what does the 19th Amendment do? It basically says that it prohibits the states and the federal government from denying the right to vote to citizens of the United States on the basis of sex. So that gives women the right to vote universally in the United States, except when it doesn't. And we can talk about that in a second. So okay. there's always an except, right? Sure. So the 19th Amendment is ratified in August 1920. So the first presidential election they're voting for is in 1920. The president who becomes elected is Warren G. Harding. Right. Now, the thing is, we have to keep in mind that not all women wanted the right to vote. And so there was about overall 35 percent of women who did vote in that election. Now, some women have been voting. In the West, we know that women had some suffrage rights back into the 1800s. Yep. Actually, Utah women had it in 1870. It was later taken away. California women had it in 1911, and I've seen one of my ancestors in those roles. Now, even before that, though, in the 1700s, we find women voting on the East Coast. Eventually, Well, there was no West Coast
0: is, at that point, right?
2: <laughs> that's true. That's true. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> so we see women in the 1700s voting, certain women, not all women. In fact, in 1776, women could vote in New Jersey. But in 1807, New Jersey changes the language of the law, and so it goes back to free white males. So as we lead up to 1920, there's kind of this hit and miss. Every state is different. Some states give women partial rights, like uh, voting in school elections. But 1920, that's when all women get the right to vote, except, like I said, when they didn't. So what does that mean?
0: Yeah, what does that mean?
2: Well, for example, from 1907 to 1922, women who were married, American women who were married to men who were not US citizens, lost their citizenship.
0: That's right. So We've citizens- done shows on this. That's right.
2: Okay, so citizenship for women was considered derivative, and during that time frame especially, you lost your citizenship and was considered whatever citizen that your husband was of whatever country. So that means when 1920 comes around, you don't have the right to vote because you're not a citizen. Now, in 1922, the Cable Act uh, reaffirms that women can get their own citizenship. It's not derivative of their husbands. However, those women who lost their citizenship don't automatically get their citizenship back. They have to apply, and it's a long process. Wow. Also, Native American women couldn't vote really till after 1948, Women in Puerto Rico. Now, Puerto Ricans had U.S. citizenship since 1917. The 19th Amendment comes by, and they don't get the right to vote. They're a territory, not a state. In 1929, the U.S. Congress finally says, fine, you women can vote, (laughs) but you have to be literate. So only give some of the women the right to vote. And then in 1935, all women in Puerto Rico are given the right to vote.
0: Now, you said something earlier about only 35 percent of the women voted in 1920 and that a lot of women did not want the right to vote. Why was that?
2: Well, you know, it's like with anything, right? There was arguments that women shouldn't vote, that their place was in the home. It wasn't in politics. And there was also the argument that your vote would cancel out your husband's. And historically, (laughs) when a man and a woman got married, they became one, and that was the husband. So she had no property rights. She didn't have rights to her children. You know, citizenship doesn't really mean much in that kind of instance. So a lot of people, including women, fought against the idea of suffrage because they just felt like they didn't want to interfere and it would make them more manly and that they would lose what they had inside the home and being the caretakers of the family.
0: So it's part of the culture of the time then?
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Okay. So are there records then to start finding out when they started voting, your female ancestors?
2: Well, so here it goes again. It depends. (laughs) In some cases, yes. Now, we've got two different things going on, right? We've got voting records. We also have women who were involved in the suffragist movement and the anti-suffrage movement. So let's talk about that real quickly. If your ancestor was a suffragist, she was part of a group, or she was an anti-suffragist, she might be a member of one of those groups, and those are records you would find in an archive. They're a manuscript collection, you know, membership lists, maybe treasury accounts where they're giving money to that cause. So that's something you can look at there. Where? Is that local
0: or national? Or where would you find those records?
2: It would matter where she was, but uh, I would start locally at archives where she lived. And one way you can find those kinds of collections is you could use Archive Grid, which is an archive catalog, and you could start there, or you could identify specific archives, you know, places in university libraries, maybe the county, and then you could search there as well. It would be really easy to find what groups existed during that time because uh, they're going to be in the newspaper. Ah. And there's all kinds of histories about suffrage in specific states, either online and in books. So you can also look there.
0: Oh, that's great. I actually found a reference to a relative who was part of the movement in New York through digitized newspapers. And it talked about her going and joining a march in New York City in the 19-teens.
2: Isn't that fabulous? Yeah. And that points to the importance of newspapers, especially for women's lives, because they can be represented in the newspaper in all kinds of ways. Now, if we look at voting records, there's all kinds of voting records. There's voting registers. There's voting lists. There's uh, another reason women may not have voted had to do with poll taxes, And that's a fee that you paid or a tax that you paid when you voted. Some people couldn't afford to do that, Hmm. especially if your husband and yourself were voting.
0: Oh, yeah, that would make sense.
2: Some of those are online. And so, for example, you could go to FamilySearch and go to the research wiki, put in the state that you're researching and the word genealogy, and it will show you different record types. You can click on Voting or Voter. And it will tell you a little bit more about those records. You could also go into FamilySearch's catalog and do a search for the state you're interested in. And then I would also do the county that you're interested in. Because remember, sometimes women voted in smaller elections like regional, municipal, school elections and so forth. Mm -hmm. So that would be on the county level. And you could do a search there. They do have a section called Voting. Now, Ancestry does have some too, not a lot, but if you look in Ancestry, if you go to the top where it says search and then all collections, you can do a search on the place your ancestor lived, there's a clickable map, or you can choose the census and voter lists collection and then you can go through there. So, for example, California, has voting records that predate 1911, and you can find women on there because women got the right to vote in California in 1911.
0: Wow. So, so what kind of uh, strategies did the uh, women take to get the 19th Amendment passed?
2: You know, there was all kinds, and, and there was even fighting within those groups that women belong to, suffrage groups, because some believe that you should be a little bit more militant, you know. Women have been fighting for this, wanting this, since prior to the Civil War. And so by the time we get to the 1900s, they're mad. Mm. And so, uh, especially in England, they are becoming militant. And so what happens is these women come up with all kinds of ideas, from influencing the men in their lives who have some clout and influencing them to go ahead to vote for women's suffrage, To writing campaigns, to marches and parades. You know, women even opened up little cafes and fed people, didn't charge, and then talked about why women should have the right to vote. And they produced cookbooks. So they did everything from the things that you would expect women to do as fundraisers to, you know, in England, they're being a little bit more militant. They are learning martial arts. They are throwing stones through windows. They're doing things like that to get their point across.
0: She's Gina Philibert Ortega. She's a lecturer. She's an author. Thanks so much, Gina. This is really fascinating. I enjoyed it. You are a worthy first guest.
2: Thank you. I, I loved
0: it. <laughs> and with 2020 and the new year and the new decade, we get a brand new season of Finding Your Roots with Dr. Henry Louis Gates. And my good friend is on the line with us right now. Hey, Dr. Gates, how are you? How are you doing, Scott? Happy New Year. And back at you. You got a great season coming up here on PBS. How many is this now?
3: This is our sixth season, and it's our most exciting season ever. Season six started with two new episodes in the fall, then we did five encore episodes. But this week, our spring season begins, and we'll have eight new episodes in early 2020 and then six more new episodes in the fall of 2020. Wow. So we'll be airing 16 new episodes from this past fall to next fall. It's a dramatic expansion of our programming.
0: And you know what's fun about it is how much people learn from watching the show, not just about history and seeing some of their favorite celebrities, but about how the work is done and how people find their own roots.
3: Yeah, we want to unveil the hidden ancestors on an individual's family tree. That's first. And then we want to contextualize the stories that we find, so that we're telling the history of America, the history of immigration, European history, Middle Eastern history, Far Eastern history, African history, because that's where our ancestors came from, Yeah. so that we are contextualizing these stories. And as you know, my day job is I'm a professor, yes. <laughs> and I want Americans to understand more about history. And so we as a people are so woefully unaware of our own history and world history. So I've decided that a dramatic, effective way to bring that history to life is through the stories of the ancestors on our guest's family tree. So they learn about pogroms in the Russian Empire and, of course, the Holocaust, but also about the Irish potato famine, the history of the slave trade, Things like that. It's really, wow. really part of my educational mission. So I'm ever the teacher. Yes, you <laughs> are. We want to are. entertain and we want to teach at the same time. Who's on the show this season then? Oh, my goodness. We have Sigourney Weaver and Amy Ryan, Queen Latifah. Oh, love her. And Jeffrey Wright and Justina Machado, Carrie Gross, <laughs> your colleague in the radio industry. Yes. And Jeff Goldblum, Gail King and Jordan Peele. The great fashion designer, Diane von Furstenberg, and another one, Narciso Rodriguez, RuPaul, and even the Madam Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi and Nora O'Donnell. (laughs) (laughs) This is a show that we created just for you, with you in mind, Mr. Extreme Genes. We're doing a special DNA program featuring the Nobel laureate, Harold Varmus, and Dr. Francis Collins, who led the Human Genome Project along with Dr. Shirley Jackson, who's the president of Rensselaer University, and who happens to have been the first African-American woman to earn a Ph.D. at MIT. Wow. And the stories we have found are astonishing. I made a list of the DNA connections, because I I know that you're a DNA junkie. Angelica Houston found out that she was 2.7% Ashkenazi Jewish. She had no idea. And her DNA cousins are, that da Bernie Sanders and Larry David. <laughs> <laughs> really? And yeah. she
0: probably knows Larry David quite well, I would imagine. It's a small world yeah. in, in Hollywood.
3: Absolutely. She had no idea that they were cousins, I'll tell you that. Isabella Rossellini is DNA cousin with Scarlett Johansson. Sigourney Weaver is cousins with Anderson Cooper. Oh, wow. Queen Latina. Yeah, and Queen Latifah is cousins with Wanda Sykes and John Batiste, who is the musical director for Stephen Colbert. Yes, um, his DNA cousin is Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> no kidding! Oh wow! <laughs> and Nora O'Donnell found out. I thought she was going to faint. I said, "Now, Nora, sometimes these results are quite surprising, and they might seem counterintuitive." Would you please turn the page of your book of life? She turns the page, she looks at it, she looks up at me, she looks down. I am her DNA cousin. And she goes, how could this be? And I said, well, the biggest surprise in the history of our show was that I'm 50% European, and 50% Sub-Saharan African, and my great-great grandfather on my Gates line, my father's father's line, has the O'Neil haplotype, which about 10% of all the men in Dublin have, so I'm definitely descended from an Irishman. And not only that, Cece Moore, who you know is our brilliant genetic genealogist, yes, has been working for over a year. Unbeknownst to me, she used her triangulation method, and she has now found the long-lost, mysterious identity of the white man who fathered Jane Gates' children. Jane Gates is my great great grandmother. Her picture hangs on the wall of our family history room at our home in Harvard Square. And we've known my whole life that the man who fathered her five children was a white man, but we had no idea of his identity. You know what she did, Scott? She told all the kids, including my great-grandfather, that they had the same father, but she was not going to reveal his identity. And she took the secret of his identity to her grave. And Cece Moore has found this guy. Oh, wow. And we are gonna have a Gates family reunion in the Gates family home in Cumberland, Maryland. And we're going to film it, and CeCe is going to not only reveal the identity of my great-great-grandfather, but then do our Irish family tree. And, man, I have been waiting (laughs) for this since I was nine years old, and I first saw that photograph, which I now own, of Jane Gates, in my grandparents' home. It will be in season seven. Now, we're airing season six now. The next episode features Sterling K. Brown, the great actor... John Baptiste, whom I mentioned earlier, who is the musical director for Stephen Colbert. Yep. And the comedian, Sashir Zameda, who came to national attention through Saturday Night Live. Briefly, you want to hear about their story? Yeah. Well, with So and Kay Brown, we hit two of the treasures when doing African-American genealogy. One, we found the name of the white man who owned his enslaved ancestors. Um, his name was Samuel Nelson, and he owned Joey K. Brown's paternal 3rd great grandmother. This guy applied for a mortgage, Scott, in 1859, and he used 68 of the slaves that he owned as collateral. Uh. In these probate records, you have to list the names of the slaves. And the other astonishing thing we found is that we trace his family tree on his mother's side back to his 4th great grandmother and grandfather were Jesse Allen and Melinda Allen, and in the 1880 census in Amite County, Mississippi, Jesse had to list where his parents were born. Now, Jesse was born in 1815, and Melinda was born in 1818, and Jesse listed that his parents, Sterling K. Brown's fifth-grade grandparents, were actually born in Africa. Oh, wow. Born in Africa. So that means that they had been in the last wave of Africans to come on the slave ships before the slave trade was banned on January 1st, 1808. And when he saw that record, man, when he turned the page, he broke down and cried.
0: We are out of time for right now, but I'm excited about this new season. It's on PBS. It's going on right now. If you've missed any of these episodes, of course, you can stream it. And, of course, we're going to stay in touch every week, Dr. Gates, throughout the season and keep up with uh, your new episodes. I'm excited.
3: Oh, I'm so excited, too. Thank you. You you do me honor and my colleagues honor and the field of ancestry tracing honor by devoting so much loving attention to the details, Scott. You're a national treasure, and I'm honored to be on your show.
0: Well, thrilled to have you, and we will talk to you again next week.
3: Okay, my brother.
0: Take care. Have a good week. It's time once again for Ask Us Anything. David Allen Lambert is back. And, uh, David, this is a question specifically for you. It comes from Paige McGuire in uh, Danbury, Connecticut. And she writes, David, I have a tintype photo of my great-great-grandfather from Boston with his Doberman dog. So, David, being a Boston guy... This sounds crazy. Are there any records of people and their dog ownership in Boston? Oh, really?
1: <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I have to admit you uh have a interesting question, but I am now quickly looking here because my friends at the Boston Archives mentioned to me about records going to the dogs literally. Yep, what? found it. Yep, there are in fact, oh, let's see no. here, dog licenses for the City of Boston through the City Treasurer's office from 1850 to 52. There are also dog licenses and registered owners' name of dog, the sex, the age, and description. And the fee, eighteen sixty-five to sixty-seven. So right after the Civil War, which might work for her. Right. And we always talk about cattle marks. You know, the cropping of the ears of our cattle oh, of yeah. our ancestors in the 18th century, 17th century, etc. There are a lot of records 19th. of
0: there are a lot of records of those.
1: Uh, Here's one you may have never heard of, Registration of Cropped Dog Ears. Based on a Massachusetts Act of Resolve of 1928, it required that the city clerk record all the dogs whose ears are cropped or cut off prior to 1928 or amputated by a veterinarian. And these go from 1928 to 1941.
0: Isn't that something? I had no idea. See, Paige? You asked a question I thought was kind of out there, but, you know, it is true there are cattle marking records in all kinds of other states, and Mm -hmm. I would imagine now that I want to go and find out if there are dog licensing records where you live, right, right in your own areas.
1: I registered dogs in our town from the 1950s on to the last dog we had about 10 years ago. And, you know, you wonder how long they keep them around before they toss them out because they figure, well, the dog's dead. It's been 25 years or something like that. But it has a genealogical value.
0: Sure, Um, it does. It tells you a little something more about the person, what kind of dogs they enjoyed, maybe the name of their dog, how old it was. So you get an idea maybe of how long they had it. That's an interesting little detail because, as we all know, our pets are part of the family, right? They truly are. They sometimes have
1: a better pedigree than we do. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's <laughs> true. In fact, you can track it sometimes more easily. But uh, great question, Paige. You know, these records are so valuable. You,
1: know, you might want to be the delegate who goes to your town or city clerk and say, you know, where are the old records? How long do you keep them? And then maybe... Get in touch with the public library or your town's historical society and make them be aware of these type of records. Who knows? Maybe your town's records go back to the 19th century or early 20th century. But, you know, it does put a person fish in geographical location. So if someone came over from Italy and bought a Doba Pinscher, for instance, and registered in 1918 and he doesn't have a naturalization, you can't find the passenger list or no city directories because it's a small town, that may be the first instance you find him living in that community.
0: Boy, I would have never thought of that, but you're absolutely right. That is absolutely true. Yeah, so if you can kind of be the advocate to uh, get the dog records over, you might reveal something more about the immigrant. Amazing thought. Or just when they move to the area.
1: You just never know what you're going to find.
0: All right. Once again, great question, Paige. This question, uh, David, comes from Catherine Hadfield. She's in River Heights, Utah, and she says, "My mother's family is from New England. Our daughter was recently in Massachusetts, so I asked her to visit the Woodlawn Cemetery in Attleboro. Bet you you're familiar with that place. Mm-hmm. To photograph the headstone of my second great grandfather who died in 1929, but." There was no headstone. We were saddened by this and immediately decided to buy a headstone for great-great-grandfather. I would appreciate any tips and cautions as to how to go about successfully arranging for a headstone, especially from long distance. Your expertise would be greatly appreciated. Catherine.
1: Well, it's funny. I actually did this about a dozen years ago, and it wasn't even in the United States. It was actually getting one in Nova Scotia. So wow. I'll talk a little bit about that if we have time. But let me tell you the basic thing is how big is the cemetery? That's the one thing you have to take into consideration. So like the Woodlawn Cemetery over in Attleboro, that's going to be something that's going to be probably town run but it could be a private cemetery. So you need to find out who the contact person is. Best one for that, you call up the local undertaker because they need to know where to put the bodies. So you call the undertaker up, find out who the contact for the cemetery is, because they're the one that's going to be receiving the gravestone when the Cutter gets it now. You don't want to buy a gravestone. Say if you live in Utah and have it sent to Vermont, you're going to hire a Vermont stone cutter company to go out there and install it. So one of the things you might tend to do is ask the cemetery what stone carvers they have used in the past. You could use something like Yelp too. Uh, it gives reviews of everything practically, and that might help. The other thought would be is if you contact the undertaker and say, who do they usually use or recommend? to families for gravestones in that community because there might be a stone carver company that's been around for 50 to 100 years that's right down the street a lot of times you find them. fish these stone carver companies uh, for gravestones are like adjacent to the cemetery they they know where the business is
0: that that's absolutely Uh, true i know one nearby here that's exactly the case it's right across the street it's almost a way to advertise for them
1: it truly is. Well, you know what? I'm sure it's one of those places that you could go to and you can obviously ask them what the, the different prices would be. The other thing you need to be concerned with is the size of the lot, because there are going to be restrictions. Some cemeteries only allow flush, flat gravestones. Other ones will have upright, but they can't be a certain height. So before you going out spending your money, contact the cemetery, find the contact, and then find out how much it's going to cost you to have the stone made, see if it's in your budget. You can also reach out to other family members. So it's doable, but you want to get your contacts down beforehand. I did the same thing with Nova Scotia, where I called the cemetery and I found out where my great-grandparents were buried. They told me it was a single grave, double deep. And I ordered a gravestone that fit the dimensions they wanted. They installed the stone. I went there, saw someone walking around with a map And we went to his office to find out they put it in the wrong spot. Apparently, the person that did the computer database had read Section 19 as Section 91. Oh, dear. (laughs) I found this out. They contacted me about a month later and said, Mr. Lambert, we've got some good news. You're now a Canadian landowner. We moved the gravestone. It's not a single grave double deep. It is a four-grave lot. So the running joke I've always told my wife now is that you can bury me and cremate me, bury half in America and half in Canada or Nova Scotia and confuse the heck out of my descendants.
0: (laughs) There you go, David. Great advice. All right. And a, a great question as well. So thank you very much to Catherine. If you have a question for Ask Us Anything, you can email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. Thanks so much, David. Talk to you next week. Talk to you soon. Hey, there you go. A lot of great stories, a lot of great information, incredible guests this week. Talk to you again next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to familysearch.org.